often faith becomes more about who is in and who is out or about who belongs and who does not but in order for spirituality to be good for anyone it has to be good for everyone in this podcast we find incredible people using their faith and life as a catalyst for goodness in this world be inspired to discover your own goodness in order to make your life your family your community and your world better Welcome to the Chasing Goodness Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Kinzer. Great to be with you as always. As this is getting put out there in the universe, in the world, the book, Bring It Home, The Adventure of Finding Yourself After Being Lost in Religion is coming out in like a month. I'm so excited, so unbelievably excited. I just booked the launch party site. So if you're in anywhere near the Eau Claire area, I want you to come out for this. It's going to be at the Forage right downtown Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And it's going to be more than just a book release party. It's going to be a book release party and a show. So my wife, Susie, and I put together like a little mini half hour show around the book. So there's going to be, we're going to read from the book. We're going to tell stories. We're going to play music. We're going to do it like we do it, right? We're going to make this a thing. And so it's going to be six o'clock the day after the book comes out. So on 11-11 at six o'clock, show up at the Forge. It's going to be a ton of fun. More details to come as they unfold. Hey, as this book gets ready to launch itself into this world, I'm looking for some people to be on my launch team. All that requires is that you agree to read the book (laughs) and then also agree to share about the book when it comes out with your community. You can be from anywhere. You don't have to be from my local area to be a part of the launch team. I actually want people from all over the place. So if you're interested in even having a conversation about being a part of this launch team, reach out to me at my brand new email, which is just hello at mattkinzera.com. That's M-A-T-T-K-E-N D as in dog, Z as in zebra, I-E-R-A.com. So hello at mattkinzera.com and I'll get you all the information you need to be a part of the launch team for this project that is such, man, such a passion project in the making. I'm telling you, about a decade and a half has passed since the first time I sat down to try to begin writing this book. So I just, uh, I, can you tell, can you tell I'm over the moon excited about this? Another thing, uh, I've been mentioning this the last few podcasts, but if you haven't yet gone onto the website, mattkinzera.com and downloaded that free seven day devotional called finding faith again, please go ahead and do that. I'd love for you to just either download that or read it online as a encouragement to wherever you are in your faith. If you like me have gone through some things and have been rethinking, rediscovering your faith, I think this seven day Devo will be a, a great resource for you to just continue exploring, continue being curious, continue to desire God, but maybe just in a, a different way. So you can download that right off the homepage of the website. Now today, man, I heard about Raw Tools and Mike Martin years and years ago, and I'm not even going to share too much about what they do because I'm going to let him do that for you, but just an incredible organization that is engaged 100% all the way in on the conversation of gun violence. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Mike Martin from Raw Tools. (music) 
Welcome to the Chasing Goodness podcast. I am so excited for this interview. I heard of Mike Martin and Raw Tools years and years ago. Mike, I have no idea even where I originally heard of you from, but I just know that when I heard about you, I was so intrigued and so excited uh, about the work that Raw Tools is doing. So first of all, welcome to the podcast and glad to have you. Great to be with you. So why don't you start by, let's give people a little bit of an overview of who Mike Martin is first, and then maybe we'll roll into how Raw Tools got started, and then more specifically, what it is that you're doing now. So just share a little bit about your background, where you come from, uh, you know, how, how you got from wherever you came from to where you're at now. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm a, a Mennonite pastor, uh, former youth and young adult pastor at the church I still attend. Um, and before that, grew up in a Mennonite family, went to a evangelical church in college, um, and was kind of pushed to um, explore my Anabaptist roots in college. And that kind of started down the path to raw tools. I'm in Colorado Springs, um, had a wife and two, two boys in elementary school. So um, there's, we, we love to hang out outdoors, do as much as we can when, that, when, when the mountains are calling, camping, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, nonviolence matters a lot to me, um, looking for creative spaces to enact it and create change in our communities, um, is really, really inspiring. Um, and I love to be a part of those spaces as much as possible. Uh, that's awesome. Now, just to, to clear up some, uh, fuzziness that people may have, because we all have different things that different images that come to our mind when we hear, hear the word Mennonite. And so yeah. I just share a little bit, cause I know, I remember my dad worked with a Mennonite man growing up. And so I had this real specific idea of what a Mennonite was like. And then I met some other Mennonite folks later on in life. And I had to like, I had to change yeah. my, my perception. So share a little bit about what it was like for you growing up Mennonite. Well, I'd say that the word Mennonite is as diverse as the word Christian and that you can get really uh, conservative theologically and politically and really progressive theologically and politically within Mennonite circles. So it depends where you're at in the country, um, depends, uh, you know, rural or urban, all that stuff play a factor into it. So for me, um, I would say I grew up in um, maybe a more modern Mennonite church, like, but within that, there's still kind of this idea or uh, someone who would have gone to the church that I was born into would have called themselves a black bumper Mennonite where they paint anything shiny on their cars black to not draw too much attention to themselves. So there's kind of that humility behind some of the Mennonite um, peace tradition spaces. Um, but we're not Amish. We don't uh, have horse and buggies, although there's a lot of uh, partnerships or um, I don't know, that certainly relational connections with that community um, especially the further east you go or in the Midwest, Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania. So from Pennsylvania, but grew up here in Colorado. Um, and I would say that if you came to the Mennonite church that we're at now, it wouldn't be that unlike a lot of other um, mainline churches as far as, you know, sing from a hymn book, but we still have a praise band kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, it's a, a a mix. And I would say pretty contemporary for what you're used to. My wife grew up in a vineyard church. And so she had the same kind of wonderings when we started attending Mennonite. My, she only knew my grandparents' version of Mennonite with head coverings and things like that. So there's, there's a mix. And, you know, if you haven't been to one, attend one and see what you think. 
Yeah, that's that's so true. I so I grew up. I still live in Wisconsin. I'm in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. But growing up, there was a very fine line between Amish and and Mennonite. And then I was a prison chaplain for a number of years, and we had a very conservative group of Mennonites come in there. And at the time, I had long hair, and I remember they handed me a track that was had to do oh, with man. how how uh, I wasn't supposed to have long hair, and they expected oh, me to put that in the chapel, which is neither here nor there. Maybe I, I did cut my hair, so maybe there was some truth to what they were saying. I don't know. <laughs> Now, now, one of the things about uh, Anabaptist traditions, you know, I guess there's there's so much we could say about that tradition. So, and in, in, in my mind, all good from from my experience and my understanding of it. But I think if there's one thing that Anabaptist traditions are known for more than anything else, it probably is the nonviolence piece of of what they believe in, what they stand for. And so, why don't you share a little bit about? You know, whether you share about that as you were growing up, how you learned about that, or, or more importantly, you know, where you are today in your thinking behind nonviolence and specifically how it's connected to your faith. Yeah, a lot, that nonviolent tradition grew out of kind of the radical Reformation. So after the Reformation, as most people know, the birth of the Protestant church, Anabaptists uh, were a little bit more radical in that. Um, they recognized that baptism was tied into this state census, right? And so um, they were uncomfortable with that, and they were uncomfortable with baptism at birth, um, that it should be kind of, uh, you make that decision when you're uh, an adult or in that, you know, range of adulthood where you can make that decision for yourself that you want to commit to a life of following Jesus and um, when that happened, there was a lot of persecution, and so Mennonites stuck to not resorting to the tools of the state like violence um, and would often be persecuted and killed, or they would flee to other safe spaces to practice their faith. So that happened all over Europe um, and then you know spread from there. So nonviolence kind of grew out of that, and when that happened, not all, not all Anabaptists um, clung to kind of that nonviolence, but the church as it is today finds its roots in that. Um, and so it's become a big practice and certainly a proponent of a lot of our faith, but it really is connected to that separation of church and state, um, which that's where you find the Amish, right? They're deeply separatist and building their own beloved community. Um, and so Mennonites are, are somewhere in between that space. Um, and, you know, growing up in Colorado Springs, when we moved here, when I was seven, so pretty much all of my second grade on was in the context of Colorado Springs, which was a mix of Air Force, Air Force Academy, Air Force bases, uh, Fort Carson Army base, and focus on the family navigators, a whole lot of that non-denominational evangelical space. Um, and I went to uh, a Mennonite church for a little bit. And then in the town just north of the Springs where I grew up, a lot of my friends went to this non-denominational church. And so by nature of relationship, we ended up there too. Um, and so, you know, I didn't, I didn't really think much of it. I would say I was pretty apathetic. Like I just didn't know or didn't care. It wasn't something top of my mind. I was in a pretty privileged space in a bubble. So I wasn't pushed to any boundaries, but you know, one one time the flag was on the cross on July 4th weekend, and that that started to kind of resonate like, well, that doesn't feel right um, based on some things that I've heard at home, um, but not necessarily heard in the church. Um, 
And it wasn't until college that one of my, one of my professors said, you know, you should check in with your Anabaptist roots to see if that's something you still identify with to help you kind of pursue um, ministry after college. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the short story of that. And the more I got into Anabaptist theology and nonviolence, the more I kind of resonated on this idea of swords to plowshares. How do we turn the tools of violence in our community into tools that create life? Um, and that was kind of always in the back of my mind, but really came to fruition as I was a, a youth and young adult pastor in the Mennonite church. Um, and then as a lot of first time, part-time youth pastors do burnt myself out because I, I wasn't, I, I, did, I wasn't good at delegating. I wasn't, uh, you know, it was, it was the first time in. And so I, I buried myself a little bit. Um, but after resigning and stepping back from that, um, then Sandy Hook happened. And people who have heard about the idea of raw tools really kind of rallied to support the idea. So, um, yeah, that's they're kind of, the start of raw tools is kind of connected with the development of my own uh, Anabaptist faith. Yeah. And yeah, so it's, there's so much about that. That's fan fascinating. Uh, you know, number one, like when people think about the Protestant reformation, they always think about Lutheranism and they often mm -hmm. forget about the role that the Anabaptists played in that reformation as well. And then just the history of watching that move forward, especially, you know, specific to this nonviolence piece, is, is fascinating. I could say maybe frightening, um, you know, uh, because there was so much violence that was happening between people that would call themselves Christians even. Mm -hmm. And, and now we get to this place in history where we are now, where you can sense that this nonviolence piece is, is really important to a lot of Christ following people because, you know, I like you, so I grew up Catholic, but then when I got into the evangelical circles, there was definitely a piece that rubbed me the wrong way when I would see kind of that, uh, that, that almost pro-military thought behind our Christian faith. And when we talk about things like war or the death penalty, it, it really, it just, it just wouldn't sit with me well. And I would spend, you know, if, if I would have seen a cross with a flag on it, I think I would have, uh, that would have probably been my last day at that church. Um, and, and a lot of that is still, I mean, I was just out in Colorado Springs a, a few weeks ago and, and passed mm. by all the focus on the family space and all of that. And it just, it brought back a lot of those thoughts to my mind. What was it for you though, that got you to the place where maybe this was a personal conviction that you had to a place where you wanted to, to, you know, in, in, you know, I guess the easiest way to say it, you wanted to take a Bible verse and turn it into to reality. Cause the idea of, um, you know, weapons into plowshares is a, and you can, I don't know exactly where it is. Maybe you can share where that is, but that's really what raw tools is founded on. Correct. Yeah. There's a verse in Isaiah and Micah and Micah adds a little bit to the end that I really like. So it's Isaiah two, four, or Micah 4.3, where they both start about turning your swords into plowshares, training for war no more, um, not nation not lifting up sword against nation, which at that time was a real ethnic issue, right? The nations were often built around ethnic boundaries. So if you, today's modern context, you know, when we're talking about um, the problems of systemic racism pieces and pieces like that, that's really relevant to today uh, when you read that into it. And then um, Micah talks about being under your own vine and fig tree in fear of no other. And so the mission of raw tools to disarm hearts, forge peace and cultivate justice is really pulled from the three sections of that verse where 
obviously turning swords to plowshares and spears into pruning hooks is us turning guns into garden tools. And then we also either create resources or partner with other organizations who have resources about learning of war no more. So if we're asking people to um, disarm themselves and certainly, especially for self-defense, hunting's a whole different conversation, um, but vegetarians have, you know, different or vegans have different uh, opinions on that too. And I think they're valid opinions. Um, and so there's, there's different conversations and different levels. We can talk about this, but training for things like de-escalation, mediation, uh, restorative justice is, is a lens that we approach everything through. So we're very survivor centered. Um, and then uh, the idea of sitting your, under your own vine and fig tree in fear of no other, uh, the, the bumper sticker version of that, you know, welcoming people with open arms instead of bearing arms. Um, what are the resources and safe places or systems that need to be in place for us to be able to do that? Right. You hear of a lot of communities saying, or after something bad happens, like, oh, we used to be a community that never locked our doors. And then something bad happens. And then all of a sudden, uh, the distrust of the whole community automatically sets in. So it's, it's why all of a sudden, uh, even after 9-11, things like the Patriot Act were put into place where surveillance that was not okay before all of a sudden became okay if it was for the sake of, of finding the bad people. Um, but, so, but we're sacrificing a lot of our own privacy when we do that, right? And the same thing is true of our faith, that when we start to make violence more and more okay, we start to sacrifice more and more of our conviction and our faith and what it looks like to follow Jesus. So um, turning guns into garden tools is a big part of what we do, as well as using that to connect people to the resources that we need to have safe communities that don't require violence to say that they're safe. Yeah. And so just so if anybody's listening is confused at what raw tools is actually doing, this is not <laughs> metaphorical here. You're no. actually taking guns and turning them into garden tools. So share a little bit about uh, how that started um, and, and uh, how it works even. Yeah. So that was actually kind of one of the things that stopped it or, or kind of slowed down the start of raw tools is how are we going to do this? Um, our, my dad has a family business that's a, uh, a landscape recycling business. And one of the people who would work on the equipment when it broke down grew up uh, as a, a traditional blacksmith apprentice, slept in a barn with the blacksmith, you know, kind of in and, and learned that way. And so um, my dad and I learned together how to blacksmith so that we could do this. Um, and from there, we learned how accessible it was. And so with restorative justice being a big part of what we do, we really want to center survivors. So we started uh, inviting folks who had been impacted by gun violence to be a part of the gun to garden tool demonstration. So they might share their story that could be really recent or decades old, but after they'd share their story, we'd invite them to the anvil to pick up a hammer and help us turn that gun barrel into a garden tool. So um, that became one of the most powerful things that we do not just uh, for the community to witness, but many of those survivors would tell us this is the, the healthiest way I've dealt with my anger, or this is something I really needed to do at this point in my healing. And there's really something special that has to do with, you know, um, sacrament, which is also called a holy mystery, right? We, there's something happening at that anvil when someone impacted by gun violence takes something that is, harm them cause them harm and is creating something that can bring life to the community and they're doing that in, in a simultaneous hit with that hammer that you can do both of those things at once um 
it's kind of where that lament meets transformation. And it's, it's something I still can't really find the words to express outside of being there to experience it. Yeah. I think the first time I heard about that specific part of your organization, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Shane Claiborne in one of his, in his book about gun violence, I believe documents one of the stories of somebody who was affected by gun violence. I believe they lost a loved one to gun violence. And he, he talks about that moment when I believe it was a mother was just hitting on that anvil and just the power of that story. And I, I'll never forget that story because of exactly what you said. Like there's, there's so much power that I'm sure if you weren't there, you could have never completely, you know, understood what was going on with this woman in that moment. Um, but it's a, a, a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing. It doesn't mean all of the hurt goes away. It doesn't mean all of the anger goes away. It's just part of that healing journey that can be um, um, really beautiful. Uh, what kind of, I mean, maybe a real practical question, what kind of weapons are you taking and turning into garden tools and what kind of tools are you turning them into? Uh, any weapon really. So most of it's going to be handguns and rifles and shotguns. Assault style rifles are pretty common. Um, you know, when we did that event with Shane and Philly, where that mom, uh, she was hitting on the barrel of a handgun that was found in, a ba- in an abandoned house. So they come from all different spaces. Um, we've, whenever we do an event, we ask the church or whoever's hosting us to reach out to their community and see if there's some firearms that people don't want anymore. Uh, and we always get, one or two. Um, sometimes it comes from uh, local confiscated weapons from law enforcement. And sometimes it's, we do an event uh, when Shane and I traveled for the beating guns book tour. Um, you know, we'd have a few events where we had a couple lined up beforehand, but the event would end and people would go home and get their guns and bring them back to be cut up because it was something that they'd already been thinking about, but being at the event or hearing from someone and, how gun violence impacted them said, yeah, I don't want to be responsible for this. I don't want someone to find this gun and do, do harm to themselves or others. Um, so it's, it's been a good, uh, it's been a good, you know, following the spirit and how we can make the biggest impact with this, not just to turn all the guns into garden tools, but to have healing be a part of that. So, um, allowing people to have access to that. That means you have to talk to gun owners and people who don't like guns and they're often at the events together. So if it's a commonly owned firearm, uh, in the U S then we've probably disabled one or two of them. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And this, this does bring up a lot of, you know, conversation, a lot of probably, uh, people kind of butting heads a little bit over this issue, this idea of nonviolence, the uh, idea of guns. I can think even within my own family, there's some pretty strong disagreement amongst this topic. Um, But the one thing that I kind of was hearing in you just as, as you're talking a little bit earlier. And as I think about this issue as a whole, I'm really well connected and and close friends with uh, the Scott family. So Daryl Scott, Craig, Craig Scott, they lost their daughter uh, in the Columbine high school shooting. And so I've been involved in a lot of conversations surrounding this, even with them, which is a fascinating thing as well. But one of the underlying things that I hear in any conversation about guns is it seems as if the pro-gun side of our country, of our world, it's predominantly out of a sense of fear. Is that what you sense as well? Yeah, that could be a big part of it. But it's also kind of like, 
I think if you have, if you didn't grow up in the gun culture and you become a gun owner, fear can play a big part of that. If it's related to anything outside of hunting. Right. Um, but I believe that the gun culture in America has been so much a tradition that it's, you can easily become a gun owner without fear just because owning a gun is so commonplace in many spaces, right? It's traditional, especially if you have like a hunting background that has evolved also into like hunting and self-defense is why we own guns that you're not necessarily doing it, getting that gun, you're buying your first gun because you're afraid in the moment um, or something bad happened. And now you feel like you need this protection, but you might also be buying the gun because it's what you're, parents and grandparents and great parents did so it's just it's the you're the next person to do it not necessarily because you're afraid so there might be that kind of traditional fear that's built into that but um i think i think fear plays a huge role um in that gun violence um or gun ownership you know the the number one reason people own a gun is for self-defense and if you're a, a new gun owner within the last 20 to 30 years fear likely played a role in that but that doesn't mean that you like your fear is unfounded, right? It just means right. like we probably haven't given you enough options to handle or or make decisions about how you handle that fear. Yeah. Now my now I grew up in a big gun culture in rural Midwest, you know, and so even though I was never engaged, you know, I've never owned an, a gun, um, was around them all the time, you know, came from a family that hunted and all that kind of thing. You know, when it was hunting season, when it was deer hunting season, my whole, basically the whole town took off a of school to do it. So I get that, that cultural piece as well. The, the struggle I have is when we engage with this on a faith standpoint, um, the, the, the challenge I have is if our faith is founded on the person of Jesus, it's really difficult to see him in any other way than nonviolent. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, it's I've, one of my professors. This is actually something that really motivated me to, to really seek out anabaptism more was uh, we had a class about this and he said the onus is on people who believe that violence is a reasonable option in conflict to prove that that's following Jesus than the other way around, right? That mm-hmm. Jesus shows a way of nonviolence. And if you think uh, that you're following Jesus and you choose violence and that Jesus would agree, then you need to be the one that kind of proves that. And so often we find it the opposite though, right? Like if you want to be non like propose that no we shouldn't arm our ushers in church um the onus should not be on you to prove that it should be on the people saying no this is following jesus or to name that we're arming our ushers but we don't think jesus would agree with us and would you say that publicly in your church if you're a leader i don't know but that's that's one of the things that i think we kind of miss in all these conversations is that one let's see if this lines up with following jesus and if it doesn't and we do it are we going to name that we're still doing it in spite of it not being something that Jesus would agree with? Right. Like that's, that's, that's the thing. And if, if we don't, we're not being honest with ourselves. Yeah. And I think it isn't, I mean, that's such a challenge around this specific area because it it seems as if, and, and I'm as guilty as anybody, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody here, but when we talk about certain issues where we can be so quick to point to the Bible and say, 
obviously this, you know, maybe it's abortion, maybe it's whatever you can pick your issue that you want to want to grab out. But then when it comes to something, maybe that makes you uncomfortable, or maybe that would make you change the way that you're living your life. Then we're a little bit more hesitant or we avoid it altogether, uh, as opposed to doing what you're saying, which would be simply saying, I'm doing this, even though I don't think Jesus would do this. And even when we schedule, like we're starting to schedule a lot of events like a, like buybacks or givebacks where people can bring their guns to churches to be disabled. Sometimes they get gift cards. Sometimes they don't. Um, and a lot of people ask the question, well, do we need law enforcement here to protect us when we do this? Um, and then I just say, well, we need to ask that question. Do we need a hired gun present while we want to get rid of guns that we feel don't make our community safe? And how does that contradict with our message how does it contradict with our faith? What is um, what is the the thing we need to wrestle with here and name it? Let's talk about it and flesh this out um, before we just kind of jump right into um, that that idea of of police or self defense as a as a means of of holding up our faith, or we could just become a church that says we we need to do something about gun violence um, and we feel like we're going to be a place that wants to turn guns into garden tools instead of a place that arms our ushers. Yeah. Now I think maybe, maybe the obvious question that probably we don't have enough time to, to give an answer that is complete, but you know, the obvious question that somebody may be listening to this, who is eh, pretty, pretty hesitant to buy into what you and I are talking about. I think the, the question then that may be asked would be, well, if not guns, then what? Then how do we protect ourselves? How do we keep ourselves safe? What would, how would you respond? I'm sure you've had to respond to that a zillion times, but how would you respond to a question like that? I think, well, part of it is there's a level of vulnerability that you choose to walk into. So it doesn't mean that you're going to create a fail-safe situation. But I would also say that having um, law enforcement or some sort of armed security there doesn't also guarantee anything for you either. Um, that uh, the idea that, and most of the anxiety comes out of, um, not having a plan at all. So if you can develop a plan that if somebody shows up, who is a bad actor, whether they have a gun or not, most churches are going to experience violence of a different kind than some sort of active shooter situation that while they happen and they're unbelievably traumatic for the community as a whole, um, we often prepare for other forms of abuse within our spaces. So, you rely on those plans. What are the things you do with that? Um, there are, we've had events where we have people who are trained de-escalators and mediators who are on the perimeter looking for people who might be trying to instigate it while also holding welcoming signs, right? So we've done a buyback where it feels more like a church car wash atmosphere. Like everybody's excited trying to like welcome you into the parking lot and we cut up the gun, we ring a bell, everybody's happy. And then, and then the people drive off. So there's a different type of atmosphere when you have that as opposed to a uniformed presence, right? It's also not very encouraging if you want to get someone who's afraid of risking arrest, but wants to get rid of a gun they know they shouldn't have, or that might be danger to them or someone in their house. If they have a uniform presence, that might give them hesitation, right? To do that, no matter how anonymous the buyback is and, and how much that's communicated, that also is a big deal. Um, so having a church come at this from a place of, from a faith-based place, um, is really powerful. And if you're a church who's active in the community, your community is going to respect you no matter who they are. 
So it's it's off to also you've already hopefully created a safe space and safe atmosphere around your church. So um, I mean, even with our uh, Shane and I's book tour of like 37 cities wildly publicized, no one has ever um, done anything like that at any of our events. And that's still true. Um, and I think a large part of that is it's faith-based. Um, it's not to say it's not going to happen, but we are proactive in how we are ready for something like this to come up. It's not like we just don't have a plan. And to me, that's where a lot of that fear and anxiety comes from is that the world has said, Hey, get a gun for self-defense. You can stop an intruder like that. When in reality, a gun in the home is three times more likely to be used against you or someone you love than an intruder. And that's the situation, right? That's the thing that we're always thrown at. Well, what if you walk in on someone hurting your wife or your grandma or whatever? And the reality is if someone wants to break into your house, they don't want you there. So it's, it's really, um, that doesn't mean to say that that doesn't happen. Right. But um, guns haven't necessarily been proven to reduce the amount of harm when that happens either. So there's a lot of statistics to go in there. And you're right, this is a, a huge question in and of its own. But I would say if you aren't going to be looking for a firearm to be part of your security or your safety measures at a church gathering, um, having another plan, right, where you evacuate, how you confront someone, all of that stuff. Are there non-lethal means, bear spray, things like that? What is your faith community comfortable with build out that plan and your anxiety will lessen because you have a plan. Yeah. It's so fascinating where, you know, kind of culturally guns are just kind of that, that Trump card. Like this is, this is what I'm going to throw down. This is going to keep me safe when, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like statistically speaking, we are making a big issue out of something that the odds of it happening to us are so minuscule that as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's more dangerous to have that gun in your house if nothing happens, then it is safe to have that gun in your house just in case something does happen. Because we also hear the stories of kids getting their hands on guns and hurting themselves or killing them. I mean, there's so many angles you could take with this, but I think so often the the fear tactics are used also to to try to convince us that guns are a good idea. And I'm not sure 100%. that's the, the the way we should be going <laughs> about this. Right. Yeah. Um, so obviously the thing that you're most well known for is the, the physical dearming and turning those, those guns into plowshares, but you do a lot of other work as well within the context of this. So share some of the other things that you keep yourself busy doing. Yeah. So, um, I'm really active in the restorative justice community. Um, so one of the stories that helped us when we started is hearing about a, a mother, Charlotta Evans, who we talk about in the beating guns book who lost her three-year-old son to uh, a drive-by shooting. And she would, you know, 17 years later, be the first person in Colorado to sit down and talk to the person who shot her son, who at the time of the shooting was only 15 or 16. So mm -hmm. these are kids that were this. And just her ability to, um, one, have the courage to step into that space, really kind of turn the light bulb on. If we're... Um, if we're making garden tools out of guns, yes, garden tools can actually do a lot. There's a lot of research in greening a space in a neighborhood um, and how that reduces violence in that neighborhood. But also the pract restorative practices help teach us how to deal with conflict. It help us not get to the point where someone feels like a gun is the only way to solve a solution, whether they turn it on another person or themselves, since suicide is a big part of, of gun violence. Um, that so those restorative practices, I, I find a lot of passion in getting people connected to that, 
Um, we also have one of our people who used to be a, uh, our artist in residence um, does some uh, kind of nonviolence 101 workshops just to introduce faith communities to this idea. Um, so much of the message out there is that nonviolence doesn't work. And she, Mary, does such a great job of, of introducing it, showing case studies on how, how it does work. You know, that there's scientific evidence that talks about, you know, when someone does intrude in it, if you are there, they're expecting you to be aggressive. And if you're not, it often snaps them out of their aggressiveness and might af- they might change the, the outcome of the situation. So, um, you know, it's really all around being imaginative and having faith spaces create these new opportunities or at least safe spaces to develop new opportunities for how people deal with conflict uh, in their everyday because once gun violence happens, there's a lot of things that escalated to that, right? And how can we teach that? Um, our church just held a mental wellness uh, workshop yesterday with our local suicide prevention. And they were talking about how suicide prevention starts at the age of two. How we deal with kids throwing tantrums tells that helps inform them about how to deal with conflict in the future. If we keep telling them to be quiet and don't want anybody to see it, especially like in the grocery store, right? Where every one of us who've had kids that's happened or whatever department store it is. Um, that's, that's just something that we're told to like keep inside. But if we allow space for people to get that out, no matter what age, then we're practicing and teaching people how to problem solve with interpersonal skills and, to me, that's such a huge part of this. Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of going back to that, is it a gun problem or a, a heart problem or a sin problem or a violence problem? Well, it's probably both, right? The gun is different with us holding it and we're different holding the gun. Both are capable of new things when that happens. Um, so it's examining the tools that we're using for conflict and and how that changes us. Yeah, that's and I, I don't want it to be missed what you mentioned about suicide prevention as well, because we do have a, you know, we have a big issue in our culture, in our world right now, in our country for sure, with uh, especially young people and suicides. Um, I was when I was a I was a high school teacher for a very very short time, but during the one year I was a public school uh, teacher in a high school, we had two students who took their own lives, who died by suicide. And even recently in a community not too far from where I live, we had another young person, a high school student that died by suicide. And we also have to remember that that also can constitute as gun violence. And so as we're talking about this, we're not just talking about gang violence on the streets or in, in inner city, wherever. We're also talking about you know, students and adults who are struggling with mental illness or struggling with anxiety or depression who are looking at that as an option as well. And so this is, this is bigger than just thinking about, um, violent crimes as we often think about them, you know? And so I think that just widens our perspective a little bit when we think about, uh, the work that, that you're doing. Yeah, totally. And it's, suicide almost across the board is 60 to 70 percent of gun violence it's it is every bit as much a part of it um especially for folks who find people who have completed that way you know it's a violent scene to come to come upon and it's deeply traumatic um you know suicide is a a, a, that's how i lost my mom 14 years ago not by gun um but even that uh there's a, a common practice that first responders won't enter a home um, if they know a gun is present in the home and it's a mental health issue uh, because at some time, and that's a good practice, right? That's what 
should happen because at some point someone hurt a first responder when that happened. So they put in kind of this best practice to do that. Well, in the cases of my mom, that meant that the ambulance sat at the end of the driveway and waited for the sheriff to get there instead of went in and, and helping her right away. Mm. So guns have become so saturated in our culture. I tell the story to say this, that they're affecting our ability to respond to people who are in need, that they're, they're affecting how quick we can respond to people who need, who need help. And in the case of my mom, it likely wouldn't have mattered because we lived so far away at the time from we were in more of a rural area. Um, so whatever those minutes were at the end of the driveway in the long run might not have had an impact. We'll never know that. But but we should think about this presence of firearms isn't just my individual liberty to own one. It's also this saturation of how it's affecting us as a community um, and our neighborhood. So, um, you know, and to your point that, kids and when i say kids it's 18 and under right high school age and under 80 percent of them who use a firearm are using a firearm that's already owned by one of their parents so they're accessing these at home um and minors who who commit violence gun violence against other people are stealing them from friends or associates homes that they know aren't secured right so safe storage is huge in all of this um, and especially from the perspective of minors that it, you could save 10 to 20 kids a day if we would just have all guns safely stored. But they're not because of that fear. If someone comes into my house, I need it loaded and on my nightstand and easy access. I shouldn't have to type in a code. I shouldn't have to unlock it from somewhere or go get the ammunition. I needed access because I only have seconds. And when you, then that just opens it up for someone else to use it. So um, wow. There's a lot of different nuance to this, right? Gun violence and domestic violence is going to be a different solution than gun violence, suicide, or uh, safe storage, or police violence, or street violence. All of those things have their own solutions, but they do have one thing in common, and that's the prevalence of guns in our country. That is not like other places. Other places have mental health issues, right? But we don't. They don't have the gun problem that we do. Other places play violent video games, but they don't have the gun violence problem that we do. So um, all of those things play a part, but we need to we need to be aware of our local context to address it in our in our own neighborhood. Yeah. And I think part of it too is just having the bravery to step forward and and address whatever's happened in your community. Because if you are in a community where guns are prevalent, again, mostly because of hunting and things like that, you speaking uh, in a in a form that would 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 question some of these things that we're talking about today would not necessarily be met with a, a lot of excitement and instead it'd probably be met with a lot of resistance but that doesn't mean the conversation doesn't need to come up and if you're not going to bring it up who is going to bring it up so it does take a lot of bravery to to address this and you're right like this has so many elements that you could look at it through um you know i just recently met uh, a woman who she was actually a first responder at sandy hook and and her husband was in law enforcement and she now started an organization to help law enforcement who have had to deal with the aftermath mm -hmm. of gun violence because there's they they then have such intense drama that they're dealing with then that affects their life affects their career but more importantly probably affects their home life and their disability to to live a normal life. And so the, I mean, you could look at this through so many different angles, but again, you're right. There's some underlying things that are just the, the truth of truth of what we should be talking about and what we should be addressing that could, you know, at least on some level address every, every situation of this that we're talking about. And like you said, you know, there's other countries that have 
similar cultures minus that gun culture. And they're not seeing the same kind of gun violence as we are in America. And so we want to pride ourselves as this, you know, wonderful country to live in the, the home of the you know brave and the home of the free. And then, you know, and here we are, um, with, with such a high rate of gun violence, suddenly making it feel like, you know, freedom isn't as, is as free as we thought it was, or, or, I don't know. It's just, it, it twists everything. Yeah. It, it makes you ask a lot of questions for sure. Yeah. When Shane and I wrote the book in 2019, it was just over a hundred and a hundred gun deaths a day. Mm-hmm. Now it's, now it's pushing 120 and would likely go over that uh, at, in 2022 as to how many people we lose and 10 to 20 of that every day is our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's part of that idea, you know, the whole idea of turning a swords into plowshare is that the sword is kind of the, like the gun. It's kind of like that quick answer solution, right? That it's it's the microwave version of the oven. It's going to give you food, but it's not going to taste as good, right? It's mm-hmm. it's the thing that will feed you and get your belly full, but it's not going to sur- solve, you know, the long-term issue. Um, and, and that's kind of this thing that, oh, yeah, I, I used a gun and I might have killed someone to stop more harm, but... I just contributed and became a part of that cycle of violence. I continued to use violence to stop violence, which really just prolongs violence. Right. And so um, that's part of restorative practices too, is building an exit ramp from those cycles of violence into cycles of what I would say, creation or life-giving spaces. So going from a sword that is kind of that instant gratification, a gun to a plowshare that requires like a seasonal patience, right? You got to plant something, you have to take care of it, you have to harvest it, then you got to start all over again. And there's so much of that kind of agrarian culture that that is throughout the we've throughout biblical uh, the biblical text on leaning onto kind of that patience, that care for the earth or the care for your community, building up relationships, resources, all of that is a part of this. Um, and so, you know, even one of our partners in Connecticut uh, does buybacks and they, uh, when they meet to cut up all the guns that brought, they, they once brought in all the clergy from the Sandy Hook area who had cared for their communities. And this has been a couple of years since the incident when they did this and had them be the ones that cut up the guns. And it was that healing part. So it is about reducing the amount of firearms and it's about taking care of the trauma that they have caused. this is a both and solution for us. Yeah. How do people get involved or what would your encouragement be to somebody who's listening and they're, they're wanting to get involved either with the conversation, their community or directly with raw tools? Yeah. Well, you can go to rawtools.org and become a part of the disarming network. So when someone wants to donate a gun to us, we have to have it disabled and cut up into pieces. So it's no longer a gun. Then it can be mailed to either us in Colorado Springs or a blacksmith who's closer. We have a network of blacksmiths as well. Um, so you can you can be someone who helps with that. We usually uh, have volunteers that connect with a gun donor. They meet in a church parking lot. You plug in a saw and cut up the guns. Um, we go through the process of making sure they're, they're unloaded and things like that. Um, and in often those cases, uh, you might be getting a gun from an evidence box because it was returned to the family after a suicide. So pastoral care or counseling can be important to have on scene or at least the option of that. So your church can be involved in that. Your faith space, your community organization can be involved in that. Or if you as an individual want to say, hey, I've got a saw or, hey, I can I can get one of those um, and do this for my community, then you can sign up there, become a part of that national network. 
Um, you can start asking your local representatives, look at the context of gun violence in your community. Maybe suicide is disproportionate or domestic violence is disproportionate uh, with gun violence and get to learn, get to get to know your community and how it impacts your community. Um, even uh, host, uh, you can have us for an event. We'd love to come to your space and turn a gun into a garden tool. There's a variety of ways we can do that. We've written resources with uh, Mennonite Central Committee, uh, which is a, a part of uh, the Anabaptist, I guess, uh, organizations that do social justice and disaster relief. And we've written um, two resources. One, just a, a conversation guide, how to talk about gun violence in your faith space. You could do that resource. We have another one that just came out called Fear Not, and it's about developing a plan to respond to active violence. It's a 12-week curriculum where you can go through and say, hey, what if we do want to create a plan for this, but we want to honor um, our faith as well and not compromise what we believe in following Jesus. Those are ways you can connect as well. Um, certainly pick up a copy of Beating Guns. That tells a lot about our story. Um, or just reach out if you have questions. Um, email us on our website, rocktools.org. We'd love to to come alongside and, and help you do something in your community. Awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time. I've enjoyed every second of this conversation. I really appreciate you just carving out some time in, uh, in your life to uh, just let the listeners of Chasing Goodness hear about the work that you're doing and about this important conversation that all of us need to be having. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. It was great to be a part of this. And uh, yeah, I look forward to, to seeing where it goes and, and talking to anyone who wants to. As we bring this home today, just a couple things that that really jumped out at me as I was listening to Mike. I mean, I could have I could have kept going on that call forever because I'm so fascinated, so interested, so passionate in so many ways on this topic. And so, but the the first thing I think the first and foremost thing, since we're talking about faith, and since we talk a lot about Jesus on this podcast, is when we're talking about gun violence, when we're having that that those conversations, or when we're just even thinking about it. Really, one of the most important things that we have to keep in mind is how does this relate to our faith? How do we connect our thoughts and views on guns and gun violence to the person of Jesus and to the God that we all claim to serve, right? And so I think that's maybe the most important thing we can get out of what we heard from Mike. And then the second thing is, if this is something on your heart, I guess the question is, what can we do about it, right? This is obviously an issue. This is obviously something we need to be talking about. So when we think about our local communities, what are some things that we are willing to be brave enough to do just to engage our community or our faith community or even just our family on this conversation of guns, gun violence, and how that relates to our faith? So again, special thanks to Mike for joining this podcast. Just such a joy. Uh, go to rawtools.org and see how you can get involved or just learn more about it. You can find me on Facebook or on Instagram at Matt Kinzera. Also, Chasing Goodness is also on Facebook. And I've, I've been I've been messing with some people have encouraged me to start doing some reels on Instagram. So I put my first one out there last week. We're going to continue to dip our toes in that pool. So, man, you might just want to 
follow me on Facebook just to see me make a fool of myself trying to <laughs> figure out this this game of reels on Instagram. Uh, also, of course, my website, which is mattkinzera.com. And again, don't forget about that free devotional that's out there for you. If you want to be a part of the launch team for the book that's coming out on November 10th, make sure you do that and keep your eyes and ears open because I will let you know when pre-orders for Bring It Home are up. But most importantly, let's continue chasing goodness together.